um, on resistance, complicity, and empire through political movements. I will quickly introduce our panelists, and then we'll just kick it off. Uh, we have four wonderful panelists joining us today. Uh, Zulfia Ab Abdurahimova is a visiting PhD candidate at Harvard's Department of Government, as well as a graduate assistant at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. Zulfia's research deals with democracy promotion policies of the US and the EU in Azerbaijan. Maryam Durrani is a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Maryam identifies as a feminist scholar and her research focuses on the nexus of mi migration studies, higher education in the US and Pakistan, Muslim youth, language, and Islamophobia. Nadim Mazin is a Cambridge City Councilor. He is the first Muslim elected to public office in Massachusetts. He is also the president and co-founder of Jetpack, a nonprofit that works to support Muslim Americans running for political office. Haley Rogers is the director of development and community relations for the Massachusetts branch of the Council on, on American Islamic Relations, also known as CARE. CARE is America's largest Muslim civil rights organization. Our moderator, Salwa Tarin, is a first-year Master's of Theological Studies candidate here at Harvard Divinity School. She is interested in studying women's participation in contemporary Pakistani political movements. Um, just as a reminder, our hashtag for this event is hashtag beyondbans. Please use it on all your social media and share your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you for that in uh, introduction, Mafaz. So I wanted to preface the panel a little bit because we have a diverse set of panelists and distinguished panelists, and I wanted to explain a little bit about, thank you, a little bit about, there we go. Um, a little bit about the thought process in designing this panel. So when my classmates Steve Nunez, Iman Jafri, and I were designing this panel, we were struggling with how we study identity, gender, race, and politics, but also the various ways in which our scholarship or activism may be co-opted or manipulated in the face of larger narratives regarding Muslim and especially Muslim women. So for that reason, we wanted to build a panel that grappled with not only the issues of politics and power as they relate to Muslim communities, but also the question, how do we reconcile the tension between resistance and complicity to colonialist, imperialist values through political movements and academic scholarships? So we're not seeking to answer that question, find one solution, but instead engage with our panelists in how do we navigate this landscape um, through their work and through our own um, ideas and scholarship and activism. So we hope our panelists can explore this, the implication of this question, drawing upon their knowledge, whether in democratization efforts, education and migration, local politics, and nonprofit organizing. So I will open it up to our panelists in order to offer some short remarks regarding their reflections on this topic, and then we'll move on to uh, questions, and then open it up for audience questions. So to start off, um, Sophia, would you like to yeah, start, sure. give a little bit of context to your work? Yes. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, as you have heard in the, in the beginning, um, I'm working on a, um, a dissertation project on democracy promotion policy of the United States and the EU in Azerbaijan. And, um, and you can guess I'm from Azerbaijan. Um, so it is a very important topic to me personally. That's why I'm working on it. Um, my topic is 
you know, as in every PhD project, it's very specific. I'm looking at the strategies of the actors, meaning United States and the European Union, what kind of strategies they pursue and have pursued and why the United States um, had or uh, US American actors of uh, democracy promotion policy had to leave Azerbaijan while EU um, actors and agencies could stay in the country. Uh, but my topic is broadly related in uh, to many issues like advocacy especially. So as the topic, the, the title of the topic says, democracy promotion, which is actually um, advocacy for democracy. Um, and my stay in the United States is, um, you know, is in very interesting times in the United States, which kind of, um, it's actually sad, but it helped me to prepare my, already before finishing my PhD project. It helped me to prepare a postdoc project to look at the, the role of the Islam on democracy and democratization and to look at, uh, at the relation of Islam and democracy very closely. Why do we think, or many people think, and many scholars argue that the countries uh, with Muslim majority, uh, majorities are kind of deemed to be um, autocratic? They cannot make the way to democracy. I think, I believe, and I, you know, I have started the research recently to prepare a first uh, proposal. I argue that there is not a such a thing that any religion um, kind of restricts democracy or certain type of political regime. It is rather the political leaders that use, who use the um, religion and culture and certain traditions to create a certain rhetoric and to um, which help them to create certain type of political regime. And I'm very excited about the questions and discussions. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Girani, would you like to offer your remarks and reflection? Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. Um, so I prepared some remarks in response to the question um, about resistance and complicity. So what I want to address here is the dilemma that I think arises when we construct two separate categories, one of resistance and one of complicity. And if we see these as mutually exclusive, we can get into the problem of having to identify our decisions and actions as a form of resistance. Is that not close enough? Okay, sorry. So we get into this trap because we have created these separate categories and have to think about whether our decisions are a form of resistance or a form of complicity. And of course, at every moment, um, if we're doing this project of identifying it either as a form of resistance or complicity, the structures of power that we are implicated in are constantly exacerbating and perpetuating ongoing systems of inequality. And so I want to talk about two specific examples to think through um, with regards to this question. So the first implicates many of us in this room today. Harvard University has an endowment of $37.6 billion, right? Um, this is the largest of any academic institution in the world. 
This is less than the gross domestic product in several um, nations, specifically post-colonial countries in Asia and Africa. And so by being here today, the question is, are we all complicit in or condoning this accumulation of capital? Or are we resisting the historical legacies of genocide, slavery, and American imperialism by calling attention to how we can use this space to talk explicitly and critique deliberately the empire? The answer is obviously not very simple, and it's not either or. Let me give another example. Last week, I facilitated a conversation for a group of parents and teachers at my daughter's elementary school here in Cambridge about race and equity in the school. The school has primarily white teachers, so we're familiar with that, and predominantly African-American students, this particular school. And so in this environment, I tried to explain that it is inevitable that all of us, and including the teachers and staff, white, black, or otherwise, are going to be inevitably perpetuating a racist educational system, even as they aspire to be anti-racist in their daily practice and lesson plans. And so again, it's really not an either-or decision, but how are we doing both, and how are we reflecting on this simultaneity? And so to do this, I tried to cultivate for myself a method of praxis which I define, and many others of course have defined this as well, as an iterative process of action and reflection about systems of power and inequality. So I think about how have I, had, as a South Asian immigrant, benefited from the struggles of civil rights movements in this country and been able to get to where I am today? How am I contributing or not to the legacy of systemic inequality in my classroom, in the institution that I'm in, in my publications, in my family, and in everyday communication. What do I call attention to and why do I do this? And of course, how do I amplify the voices of others or give space when I need to give space and be quiet when I need to be quiet? As I reflect on these issues, I also understand that I'm always complicit in a great many evils, even if it's simply by paying my taxes and contributing to the military industrial complex or living in the corporate apartment building I live in or the use of Apple products when I think through how these raw materials were acquired and how these products are manufactured um, by Chinese factory workers who do not have nearly as much agency as I do. And so within the Pakistani community that I'm from and within Muslim communities, I hear a lot about how people say things like, Educate too much education is dangerous. I don't know if anybody's heard of that. But especially as a woman, when I have the audacity to critique within the community, this is something that is told to me. But what I think is dangerous is actually a kind of complacency that is sometimes more comfortable than having to critique and question ourselves. And so any kind of submission to this structure of power without a critical reflection and action together, however minor that might be, I mean acknowledging just how minor these observations that I've made today are, is something that I think that we should aspire to. And so what I would like to think about as part of the question and answer today is thinking through this idea of praxis in daily life, in scholarly life, in activist life, and how we are both complicit and resisting simultaneously. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Nadine, would you like to offer your remarks? Sure. Um, I'm going to kind of riff off what the, what the prior two uh, uh, speakers have said. Certainly, uh, we're sitting in a university with the largest endowment in one of the wealthiest cities in the wealthiest nation, as Bernie Sanders would say, in the history of the world. 
And in, in Cambridge, uh, as was alluded to here, uh, we have 50% of public school kids living at or near the poverty line. These kids we know will have, uh, despite the fact that we spend three times the national average per student on education, they will have uh, fairly poor economic <coughs> and educational outcomes and opportunities. Uh, and uh, it's all over the backdrop and in the shadow of a Kendall Square, an Alewife, a uh, biotech corridor, uh, a concentration of uh, uh, tech firms and tech jobs and high wages that is unprecedented in the history of mankind. Uh, so, uh, when we look at our complicity, I think we also have to look at the scale of the problem. It may have been easy for uh, our forebears in the 80s and the 90s to have said, uh, we really need to focus on putting down roots in America as, uh, uh, as young immigrants, uh, Muslims or otherwise. It may have been reasonable even for upper middle class folks to say that they were just uh, getting by at a prior time. But I would hark to the Islamic uh, value of Fawlt Kafeya, which I think is echoed across many different uh, traditions and, um, and uh, even intuitions, that uh, if a certain social or government obligation is not being met, it is uh, incumbent upon each person to set down some of what they're doing in order to guarantee that thing themselves. And I would say uh, now, uh, more than any other time in history, it is clear that, that, that this is in fact incumbent upon each of us. I would also say uh, uh, that for the most part, uh, scholarship, uh, at least in my experience at MIT and in my run-ins with, uh, with Harvard and, and, and even uh, many other institutions, that scholarship is not really that permeable to activism right now. Scholarship and scholarly communities are not really permeable with their communities. Harvard bordering the poorest community in Cambridge and uh, having relatively little to do with it. MIT bordering the second poorest community in Cambridge and having relatively little to do with it. Uh, and uh, it is, I would say, in this context that we, we have one of the easiest uh, choices and one of the most straightforward turning points in history. Will we establish, each of us, a daily practice um, that allows us to take an interest in and take a part in the inequity around us, or will we uh, simply, as uh, scholars and learners have done since time immemorial, come out, be inspired, leave, and be busy? Uh, we, we, we are not, not correcting these social ills because we wish them to persist because we are not equal to them, because we are bad people. Uh, we are not uh, uh, countering these uh, social ills sufficiently, uh, in my opinion, simply because our priorities uh, have not been shifted radically, despite the fact that through a slow march of uh, socioeconomic inequity, uh, gender inequity, and a whole host of other things, despite the fact that uh, the situation has become stark for us. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, if we were to have made a list of hallmarks of, uh, of social inequity that would cause us to drop everything that we're doing now, if we had made this 10 years ago, everything that's happening around us now would be the trigger that would cause us to, uh, to drop everything and, and uh, establish a daily practice or commit our lives to these issues. Uh, but uh, given the way that society works and, and, and given the, uh, the unusual nature of, um, 
uh, of social inequity and violence today, uh, it is all too easy, I think, to slide into um, that, that uh, state of affairs as, as the norm, as, as normal. Um, lastly, I'd say, uh, echoing something that the doctor said over here, uh, uh, we have a, a great need, yes, I know, sorry, in your, in your advanced age, um, the, the, um, uh, we have this need internally in the Muslim, American Muslim community for a great deal of critique and to elevate leaders, uh, you know, of all uh, sects and, and scholarly schools of thought, of all genders, of all races, and I, we just haven't started the project for the most part. Uh, and, and critique is indeed very difficult in, in many first-generation communities, not just Muslim ones. Um, but but I, I must say that it is in our community where we have an, a very unusual division between the gatekeepers and uh, the activists of tomorrow, uh, where the latter have more or less given up on the exist pre-existing institutions, despite the fact that they may very well be our only foundation for the next stage of, uh, uh, of address or redress to the socioeconomic <coughs> and uh, uh, other types of inequity. Uh, I, I certainly implore everyone, if you are establishing a daily practice, that some of it be dedicated to the slow and consistent prodding of our existing institutions. They're not uh, as, uh, these problems are not as insurmountable in, in, internally as we might think. And my personal experience is that uh, by developing action plans, by strategizing, by committing, to reforming these institutions, not only will we see the fruits uh, that, that we believe we are owed as a community, as a, as a wider community, but we, I think we also find that these institutions are happy for the change once they, once they experience the, uh, the, the fact that it is, is not really subversive nor is it really threatening um, to, to each uh, given institution. Um, lastly, I'll say that the project of bigotry that we face while we do all of these things as American Muslims, for American Muslims, with American Muslims, is like an activism tax. And uh, uh, that in the, in the context of doing this good work and setting a high standard for ourselves, uh, coming to terms with uh, uh, the importance and the, and the scale of doing this work, uh, that it is very difficult to reach escape velocity when there are people not working to make you better through critique, but working to actually destroy um, your credibility through, uh, uh, through libel and character assassination. And this, um, I found so far, is almost universal across American Muslim leadership. If you reach a certain level of leadership, you are targeted. Uh, and that state of affairs is also um, uh, deleterious to the, to the project of, uh, uh, of reaching a new standard of, of, of social justice and social equity and, and, and gender and racial equity in our community. Thank you. And Haley, finally, would you like to close off with our opening remarks? Yes, thank you. I'm so happy, actually, to be the anchor on these opening remarks because you all have given me so much kind of to think about. Um, basically, uh, I'd first like to talk a little bit about what it is like to, um, you know, work for an organization who is one of many on the front lines of this fight um, to promote civil liberties and protect the civil liberties of the American Muslim community. Uh, however, being on this, um, on this front line, uh, we constantly are walking um, you know, on the line of complicity and resistance in that we have to both maintain credibility and engage with the system that exists that is oppressive, um, especially towards American Muslims and American Muslim women as well, um, while defending our rights and defending our community. Um, so I think inherently uh, CARE's role is in between the Muslim community um, 
and the greater public. And, you know, we capitalize on the diversity of our community, and I think we have a lot of opportunity to, you know, check our own privilege and check all the existing, um, you know, diversity and talent within our community to strengthen our cause and to, to gain momentum. Um, that being said, uh, you know, CARE often faces criticism from both sides for not being inclusive enough or not being, you know, not committing to one uh, thought process or, you know, one ideology of Islam. Um, but at the same time, um, existing in this kind of inclusive and broad spectrum, uh, we are able to harness the momentum of the American Muslim community. Um, you know, that being said, I think that our position, again, you know, our organization is there to promote the understanding of Islam, to encourage dialogue, to, and, you know, first and foremost, to protect the civil liberties of the American Muslim community. Um, so we're constantly trying to both integrate and, and work with the system that exists, but without in any way um, giving up an inch of our own civil liberties. So major challenges that we're facing in the field is the you know, normalization of being Islamophobic. The fact that we had uh, you know, a former presidential candidate um, and now you know, major member of the American government saying that Islam is in con it's not conducive um, to America and to democracy. Um, and this is frankly, you know, not true, but the fact that this is becoming the normal thought process is incredibly dangerous. Um, we spend, we've been astounded by the amount of bullying that is going on in our school systems. And we have children, um, you know, as young as eight years old being called terrorists in classrooms. And, and what is this going to do to the future of, you know, a civically engaged Muslim community? How are these children going to have the confidence to stand up in front of people and to fight for their community? If when they're, even before they have the ability to understand and practice their own religion, they're being told by their classmates that it is inherently bad. At the same time, I think, um, you know, we are always protecting, we are doing our best to, um, you know, have a very strong presence in the media and change the way that Islam is perceived in the media, which, you know, there's a statistic saying 65% of Americans believe they've never met a Muslim before. At the same time, uh, one of our interns recently did a study that showed that the Boston Globe, um, something like 82% of the stories published in the Boston Globe about Muslims portray them in a negative and violent light. So when you put these two facts together, um, of course there are many Americans who perceive Muslims to be bad, violent, and, and inherently against democracy and American values. So CARE works you know, kind of tirelessly to change this dialogue and to make sure, and to work directly with people who work at the Boston Globe or who work with the media to you know, change the way that we portray Muslims and encourage uh, you know, unbiased and balanced perception of Muslims in the media. Um, so again, I think the, the major uh, impression that I had and the, and the major, um, you know, the thing that drew me to participating in this panel was how as a civil rights organization do we both um, participate with the system that is, you know, imbalanced in power and oppressive, um, but do so in a way that promotes the, you know, the protection of the civil liberties and the empowerment of, of our community as a whole. Thank you. Um, these comments have been really insightful in the way in which they have both revealed 
some tensions that we might have in the group and, and things that I would like to revisit, but also common themes such as accountability, building sustained resistance, whether in academia or activism. Um, you know, the simultaneity or this walking a thin line between resistance and complicity and how we might have both, you know, a foot at each door and how do we, um, how do we move on or conceive of ourselves in that position. So the first question that I would like to visit in light of all of your remarks that have kind of laid out your general vision for what this, um, about this theme and about your general work is your specific roles in resisting or transforming current structures of power that you specifically focus on, whether in academic settings or in the local community. And I'd like to start with you, Zofia, and how you are um, looking at the various strategies and actors that impact uh, democratization efforts in Azerbaijan as an academic, but also as an Azerbaijani yourself. And how do you see your role and your insights, what you can offer as impacting you know, what's going on at the ground and, and what do you offer in your scholarship in terms of understanding these complex um, actors and this complex landscape? Um, thank you, very interesting question. And it's also a very critical question. Um, I, as as uh, Azerbaijani, um, I cannot talk in the Azerbaijani media much about um, democracy, democratization, the role of the Islam on democracy, um, because the the government has a kind of um, uh, has targeted the policy to put Islam into, a, like to paint Islam as a kind of danger to the stability in the country. However, I am trying and I would like to um, contribute to the, um, to the public discussion in, in my country also uh, in, uh, among my generation in Azerbaijan and also outside of Azerbaijan, that the perception they have of Islam that um, we cannot establish a democracy in Azerbaijan because we are uh, a Muslim majority country, 93% of Azerbaijan is, 97, sorry, are uh, Muslims. Even uh, the well-educated young Azerbaijanis outside of the country, uh, many of them in Germany. Um, so I studied in Germany before I came here and lived there eight years, and I know a lot of Azerbaijanis. Uh, majority of them think that we can never establish democracy in Azerbaijan because Azerbaijan is, has an Islamic culture uh, or is Muslim-majority country. But with my um, uh, research, um, I would like to contribute to the public discussion in showing or with showing that um, this is the narrative that have been um, created by the um, uh, by uh, by the people who who are um, you know who are in favor of. Um, of certain type of uh, political regime in the country. Secondly, it is uh, it has started with the scholarly dialogue with um, 
if I am correct, it is it has started with Huntington, who said that democracy is rather possible in um, uh, in Christian world, in Christian uh, Western uh, um, uh, space, and especially um, in uh, Protestant countries, because Protestantism uh, emphasizes individu individualism. So, uh, and he, you know, he described that um, Islamic uh, countries, uh, they do not have a chance to become democratic because, um, I'm trying to cite him, so, um, because the God, because the Caesar, the God is Caesar in Islam. In Confucianism, uh, Caesar, um, God is Caesar. In Islam, uh, God is Caesar. In Confucianism, Caesar is God. In Orthodoxy, it's very funny. In Orthodoxy, he kind of describes that God is kind of partner in crime of God. Uh, Caesar, no, God is partner of crime of, uh, uh, of God. So um, this is, uh, but after Huntington, there are uh, new studies uh, in the past few years. Um, a very famous scholar from Stanford, Stephen Fish, and another scholar, uh, Alfred Stefan, is also a famous scholar of democracy and Islam. They, um, uh, you know, they have uh, they have done research from different perspectives, also studying uh, Quran. Um, so it, it is uh, the what scholars can do, including me. Well, it's too modest to say to call myself scholar, but I'm you know I'm on my way. Um, what we can do uh, is to contribute to the public discussion that it is actually wrong conception that Islam is not compatible with democracy. If Islam is not compatible with democracy, why India is democratic? Well, India has 15% of the population are Muslims and it is approximately 180, 175 approximately million Muslims in the country. It is proportionately, it's not too much for India, but it is quite a bit amount if they, if this uh, Muslim minority would like to create, you know, chaos or uh, danger to uh, democracy in India. Um, also, we have another example. Turkey has now, in the past few uh, years. Um, kind of trouble with democracy, but Turkey has been a democratic country and it's Muslim majority country. What about Indonesia? What about Senegal? So we have a lot of examples. And in the recent years, there are research um, um, art, like articles and books that um, not Islam, but the Arab culture is the problem. So the dialogue and narrative is kind of changing, but we have, again, another exception. We have Tunisia to kind of put this narrative upside down. If they are a culture is the problem, why Tunisia is democratic. Tunisia's political rights score in 
uh, in Freedom House is one, which is the highest score, even better than many established country, uh, democratic countries in, in the West. Thank you, I appreciate how you brought up the nexus of media narratives and also Huntington as a scholar that's been you know, famously uh, disputed for many years and we sometimes find ourselves constantly in response to them. And also the collective narratives that we have in between a community that Nadeem had also mentioned and Dr. Durrani. So Dr. Durrani, moving on to your work, um, especially your ethnographic study of Muslim youth and educational systems, um, both in the U.S. and in Pakistan, I was wondering if you could, again, speak to your, the role that your, your work specifically does to um, respond to or resist certain um, the, the nexus of these narratives um, that are dominant in various aspects of our lives and also how they translate into um, sustaining uh, structures of power that we find ourselves mm -hmm. dealing with daily. Yeah, um, so talking a little bit about my research. So I did an ethnography um, on or with um, Muslim students in Lahore and New York City. And I was working with students who had migrated from somewhere else within Pakistan. It was often from more rural, um, kind of like outerlying areas to Lahore to a very urban environment for their higher education. They were coming from more working class backgrounds um, and most of them were actually attending on scholarship. And so that kind of positions, uh, kind of uh, gives context to the class backgrounds that they were coming from. And in New York, it was similar in the sense of these were students who had migrated themselves or their parents had migrated to the states. And some of them were documented, some of them were undocumented. And um, they were going to college uh, in the city. And also, many of them were there on with, with Pell Grants or other kinds of scholarships and grants that they had um, acquired. And many of them were also first generation. So that's like a buzzword in um, education in the US. Less so in Pakistan, but it was a similar issue. They were also first generation college students. And so I always begin with talking about who I worked with, because as an anthropologist, that's the center of the work, is talking to people and understanding their stories and their, um, the reasons that they're making the decisions that they're making, and also having a very kind of close relationship through participant observation, where you spend time with people day in, day out for months, and then from that, you're able to say something about um, the the, the questions that you have. And so the questions that I had was, how do young people experience this process of change? Whether we're talking about you know, physical migration, whether we're talking about different kinds of cultural mobilities, social mobilities, trying to access um, financial mobility or class mobility, how are they processing this, this change that they're going through? And oftentimes, um, within the literature or within conversations about migration, both in the public and in scholarship, there is this pathology that happens to migrants, as if they're somehow atypical, um, something outside of the norm. So the norm is people who never move, quote unquote, and stay in the same place their entire life, and everyone else is kind of like an immigrant or a migrant, and they're like somehow um, pathologized in this way. And so when I, when I approached it, I acknowledged that there is this sedentarist bias within um, within migration scholarship and more generally in public discourse that I wanted to address. Because 
by constantly seeing international migration as the way that we orient around this question of people moving from one country to another, we're not really paying attention to how internal migration is actually, can be maybe just as, um, just as uh, kind of traumatic in terms of the change that you encounter, if not more. And you can think of it from the perspective of moving within the United States from um, the Midwest to New York City. It can actually be quite a huge culture shock, even if you're not crossing a national boundary. Um, so I think part of what I want to do in my research is kind of question the, the way that, or the, the, um, the normative kind of discourse around migrant youth, specifically thinking about migration more generally, and also focusing on Muslim youth, because I think that's the other question that people have, right? Anytime you're talking about youth, there are these conflicting um, narratives that people have. One, which is, you know, youth are the future, and so we should invest in the youth, and therefore, like, you know, the future will be brighter. But then there's also this kind of, like, possibility of deviance, right? That, like, youth could go in this direction that is um, dangerous, and we need to somehow curtail and, you know, control them. And with Muslim youth, it's become more and more the case that, um, as Hallie was saying, that in schools, you know, they're seen as somehow guilty of something before they've even had an opportunity to grow up and, and, and actually be taking responsibility for their actions. And this is not exclusive to Muslim youth in the United States. Obviously, like anti-black racism and um, seeing any other kind of racialized minority as somehow dangerous is part of our educational system. And so now we have Muslim youth kind of like as part of this, um, kind of subsumed within this problematic uh, narrative. And so that's another kind of category that I want to dismantle is how Muslim youth are identified. What is, what is the category of youth? What is the category of Muslim? And how do, these, how do these get kind of created and constructed within mainstream discourse in the media? And then how are young people responding to that? How are they actually um, trying to resist or, um, or finding other ways of even if they agree with something that's being said, for example? Um, Owning their own narrative is actually a really important part, I think, that needs to be recognized more and more. Um, so I think that's, that's good for now. Do you have any other questions? Yeah, I really appreciate how you've mentioned danger twice. And now moving on to Nadeem, I would like to once again visit this question about your specific role in resisting um, or transforming current structures of power as you laid out in the many ways it's possible in our local community, but the ways in which you personally might um, might navigate the danger, the risk, but also the responsibility that you feel in your position in local politics and to your personal um, community, and perhaps how the work of something like Jetpack Inc. would influence that in the way in which it advocates for fair representation of minority communities in all levels of government. So, big question once again. Okay, great. I feel like I should start sketching something. Mm -hmm. I have like my model for community organizing, maybe, maybe in another question. Um, so uh, Jetpack was established to train uh, uh, Muslims, minority allies, and uh, Muslims, minorities, and allies. Sorry, to uh, become authentic community organizers, and through that work, to engage in in, in uh, addressing you know some of the uh, the issues we had talked about for people to find their passions and find the relationship between their passions and and, and the social ills or or the potential opportunities uh, framed another way around us. Um, and that by becoming an authentic community organizer that this type of person may be the best type of elected official. That if you actually have a, uh, a connection in your community, not only is it easier to walk into office 
in roles like school committee that sometimes just need a handful of votes, or city council where you need in the low thousands, even in a big city sometimes, uh, that, that, uh, that, that one should not be running for office and, and governing uh, a community or, or a, a district uh, based on charisma and marketing, that one should actually do so based on a specific commitment, based on uh, voter accountability, based on uh, an actual uh, pedigree for analysis and not just pointing at a problem and analyzing it, but actually solving it and, and demonstrating the ways in which it may be solved uh, collectively. Um, <clears throat> you'd also, so I think organizations like Jetpack are important. I also think organizations like Jetpack are underfunded. Go online. <laughs> uh, uh, come on down, give today. Uh, the, <laughs> the, um, the, the question about protecting oneself, uh, if, I, if I got that right, um, it is an important one as well. And people often ask, especially journalists who are looking for a very specific story arc, you know, what is it like in the time of Trump or how do you protect yourself? Most journalists, I think, don't understand the scope of Islamophobia and, and the type of... Um, Islamophobia uh, uh, directed at um, and weaponized against uh, specific, uh, specific leaders, a very large set of leaders that come up through the ranks. And, and so for that reason, when we're giving stories about Jetpack or uh, talking about American Muslim political leadership, um, we, we tend to kind of brush off this issue and uh, say it's much larger than you realized. Um, it is uh, fairly deep. It can be very consequential if you're a political leader. Um, but at the same time, if you have these community roots, if you're actually establishing the, uh, the connections and the cooperation that are already needed to take on the large projects we've talked about, then these networks and this, this uh, fabric is a very strong uh, fallback when you're being attacked, in my case, I found that uh, a, a local uh, hate group had attacked several um, of uh, the community's leaders, and each year they seemed to be focusing on one leader and, and putting together a documentary, an article, a guilt by association, a lecture about why this one person should be derided in our community. And they would put, in, in my case, it seemed like tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars behind advertising so that everyone in your professional uh, circle would see this smear campaign. And in my case, literally everyone in Cambridge that I met for two months had seen it. Literally everyone, with no exceptions. Um, that's a large number of people I see you know, day to day, uh, several dozen people, and in a, a course of a couple of months, potentially thousands of people. Um, uh, something like that can seem insurmountable, but the fact is that the community came to my aid, and I, just as I was beginning to think, what are we going to do, everyone had already done it. My colleagues on council had done it. Uh, friends in the community, totally, total strangers, came into city council and spoke at public comment and said, I thought something was fishy when I read the quality of the article and began to check on the, the claims. And I started to check on the person being uh, assailed. And uh, you know, lo and behold, I'm just here to say that this is clearly a smear. That's an incredibly uh, uh, impressive work to do de novo and, and totally independently. And uh, while I can't say that everyone will be lucky to uh, escape uh, attacks like that uh, unscathed, I think that the, the strongest thing we can do is, is to address this issue head on and to make sure that our connections are very strong. Uh, and it is only out of doubt that these things take flight. It's not even about maliciousness. It's about the momentary doubt that an organization, a partner, or a friend, or, or, a, or a, <coughs> even a stranger in the community will make their decision. 
Uh, and uh, if you can inoculate against doubt, which is easier to do than, than persuading someone post facto, uh, then, uh, then I think that we can probably stave off what has been to date one of the strongest destabilizing factors within the American Muslim um, community and certainly uh, one of the major reasons why American Muslims are incredibly underrepresented in elected office. Um, and, and, and good that it should be so straightforward to do and that it should, it should be in, uh, kind of comport with our, our other obligations to, uh, to resistance. Thank you. So Haley, moving on to uh, legal advocacy and nonprofit context, I think this question of not just a reactionary or um, response to a single narrative as Nathim, you're pointing out in your examples, if we're just pointing out, oh, this specific thing, we're not really building constructive strategies. Or as you, in your um, role as Director of Development and Community Relations, um, perhaps it's not beneficial to building a sustainable um, you know, volunteer base, a donor base, a base that you can reach out to in those reactionary times, but also that fits in with a sustainable strategy. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more, once again, to your specific role in CARE in building this um, sustainable strategy for resisting all of these narratives that we've heard right now that, um, that especially in this time, it seems like CARE's work is, you know, at the forefront more than ever, as you were saying, on front lines, um, but also the ways in which it is constructive, it is um, sustainable and pursues a longevity um, in tackling the structural issues, not just the, the case by case issues. Mm -hmm. Sure, I think for CARE it's a very challenging time for exactly that reason. Um, first of all, CARE was established in June 2015. We began operations in 2016 and we are currently a three-person team in Massachusetts. So by far our greatest challenge in our work is um, being proactive. Uh, a lot of what we do is reactive, and, and which is great. It has to be done. It's why we exist as an organization. But the best way, I think, to have a proactive um, you know, strategy for resistance um, is to have allies. So since uh, President Trump was elected, CARE has had an overwhelming response of allies in both the nonprofit sector, in, in the corporate sector, um, you know, in education and in, in public office. People have been showing us so much support and, and showing that they want to work with us to make, you know, the world a safer place and to, you know, promote the understanding of Islam and promote tolerance um, and encourage dialogue between parties that may have not had enough discussions yet. Uh, again, you know, the challenge is always that at the end of the day, we do end up with a lot of allies who, who don't have the full scope of understanding of what the issue is. And rather than letting us as a, a, an oppressed population kind of organically and from a grassroots level come up with long-term solutions, we do sometimes face people telling us what to do. And their perspective is valued as always because, again, in, whenever you're problem solving, it's you know, excellent to have a, a diverse you know, spectrum of perspectives to work with. Um, however, sometimes we are, are told what to do and it doesn't work because it's, you know, the issue is bigger than, than is understood by the general population. So a lot of the times, um, 
I think that the best way to encourage allies and supporters of our organization, of our mission, is to start off with just explaining and, and getting a sense of what their understanding of Islamophobia is in America, the roots of it, what is the interest financially and otherwise in funding Islamophobia and propagating Islamophobic rhetoric and information and misinformation, more importantly. Um, and I think by doing this, uh, allies feel more confident in defending care and defending our work. Um, one way that I know that as an organization we are doing a good job is that we are constantly the target of hate from groups all across the country and especially in Massachusetts. Um, as Nadine mentioned, there is a lot of money and a lot of effort behind um, defaming organizations and individuals who work with care. So it is more often than not I take phone calls from potential donors or potential partners um, who have to ask if we are a terrorist organization, that have to ask if we are funding Hamas or Hezbollah, whoever. Um, and the fact that this is the norm is, is scary in itself, uh, especially because we are dedicated to America and what is happening within the boundaries of our own country. This is the purpose we serve. So I, I often feel frustrated that every time I forge a new partnership, I first have to defend our organization against you know, inaccurate and inflammatory comments from, from people with a lot of money and power. Um, however, I think that the amount of information and the openness of the community and um, you know, the distrust towards the information that's being propagated about Islam and about Muslims, I do feel encouraged that uh, you know, people are motivated to better understand our cause, that they um, you know, are open-minded enough to, to second-guess something they see, you know, whether it's an individual being smeared, whether it's an entire organization being attacked. Um, but, you know, this all culminates to the fact that, you know, being a political organization who serves Muslims makes you subject to being perceived as a terrorist organization. When we talk about, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood designation, what will that do? That will basically allow for the dismantling of every major Muslim political organization in America. And then who will be there? Who, ha who else has the expertise to provide direct legal representation, litigation, um, you know, counseling for free to underprivileged Muslim Americans. Who's going to, you know, fight the good fight? Yeah. So at the end of the day, um, you know, as personally, I, I see two sides. I see the side of many well-intentioned people from outside our community looking to support us. Um, and my appreciation for them and for their work is, you know, I, I can't even express it, but I also always have to lead with, one, encouraging them to learn more about what we do so they can be a better ally, and two, ensure that, um, ensure that how we are being presented is, is fair, unbiased, and accurate to the work that we're doing. So it's a very, it's a very fine line. <laughs> Yeah, this whole panel is about those fine lines, and and as Dr. Johnny was saying, the simultaneity of um, where we find ourselves at any given moment. So I want to um, get to the main topic of the day's symposium, um, which is the question of women, gender, and Islam. As we all, we've touched on that a little bit, and uh, the minority populations, and I'm wondering, you know, how may these issues um, 
uh, resistance, complicit complicity, and their um, you know fluid nature um, be further complicated in the case of or the cases of Muslim women. So Dr. Drani, I was wondering if I could start with you and your work, um, both in youth and education systems, and how you know these issues are um, in different ways socialized in the institutions that you study, um, especially in a comparative uh, context. And then I'll open it up to the rest of the panel. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so when it comes to it's interesting. So I, a lot of time that I spent in um, New York was with a Muslim student association in the city. And um, I spent time in the club room and with mostly actually with the female students because with the male students, hanging out with them as a group was less comfortable for all of us. So we would have one-on-one -on -one conversations most of the time or um, one or two people rather than kind of... Um, and actually another reason was that it was structural because actually... The club room that I was um, doing my research in was segregated with a wall. So there was an actual physical wall that separated the sisters' section from the brothers' section. And, and this sex segregation came up in the way that they organized their events as well. So the way that they organized their events was if there was a speaker coming for an event, and the speakers were always male speakers, which were invited for the club events, they would come and... Um, the, there would be two separate entrances for the brothers and the sisters. Um, so the brothers would come in, for, let's say, from this door, and then the sisters would come in from like the back door. And um, the, the club meetings were also organized in that way, where they sat on different sides of the room. And, and the structure of, of like the physical kind of um, geography of how these meetings, these lectures, these kind of events took place was not in any sense uh, inhibiting like what I think the women were doing in the club, right? I mean, they themselves, in some sense, maybe having that solidarity amongst um, their fellow students created an opportunity for them to actually develop their positions in, in certain ways that maybe would have been more difficult had it been a different structure, especially based on the fact that oftentimes they were coming from more, um, from, from families where um, this was also part of the culture, this was part of like the home practice, was to sit separately. Um, and when I used to go to their houses, I would also be taken to, for example, um, the kitchen area or into a bedroom, and that's where we would have our conversations rather than in the, the main living area where the fathers would sit. And that was also partially because I think they didn't really, like, what is a researcher and what am I doing there kind of thing. That was also part of the, the confusion and, like, who am I type of thing. Um, and so I reflect on this a lot, on how... Uh, patriarchy is so deeply kind of part of our um, community structures, um, cultural norms, communicative uh, practices, etc. And patriarchy in the sense of, you know, sex segregation by itself doesn't necessarily necessitate patriarchy. However, when decision-making moments come up or when opportunities come up to, for example, invite a female speaker, those speakers were only invited for the sisters section. They were not asked to speak to everyone, right? And so, these kinds of, um, I'm still kind of trying to, to um, figure out how I'm going to present these observations and what the argument is going to be. So as what I've done so far is basically describe what happened. I'm not necessarily making a value judgment on the situation because it's actually not about whether or not it's the right way to do it or not. That's actually not the point. 
point is, is how does this actually play out in terms of people's daily lives and how much, um, how, 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 how are they able to speak or not based on these, um, these norms that are put into place? And, um, and I think part of the reason that I'm hesitant is because of a lot of really great work that's been done. For example, I have in front of me a chapter by Sabah Mahmood on feminism, democracy, and empire, where she talks about, you know, narratives that were written by Muslim women about um, challenges that they encountered within Muslim communities of not being able to speak, not being able to have a voice, not being able to have agency in their own life or um, what have you. And then what happens when that narrative gets co-opted as a way to, um, as a way to uh, you know, marginalize and, and, and in a sense create a narrative of Islam is not compatible with a liberal uh, way of living or, or democracy or what have you. Like all the ways that these kinds of narratives, even if they're coming from Muslim women, even if they are, there's a way that you know, the quasi um, think tank and political organizations take these narratives, even if it's not intentional again, and co-opt it to make an argument for why Islam is incompatible with American life, right? And so this is kind of a, a real delicate, um, delicate um, again, line to balance on of how do you actually create a, a, a story or a compelling kind of case for what is happening in this particular situation that is at the same time considering the larger kind of narrative that exists out there and to not contribute to the further marginalizing or um, dehumanizing of a Muslim way of life. And I think that's still a project that's unfolding, which is why I don't have a clear, distinct answer, like an answer for how this should be done or how this can be most productive. I think most people are um, trying to explain that there's a lot of uh, heterogeneity across populations. So part of the issue is that when you start to identify this particular group as somehow exceptional in their patriarchy, and you don't recognize how that exists broadly across society, across American society, across white society, across African-American society, if you, across other, other countries in the world, other religious communities. There isn't anything exceptional about this within the Muslim world. And that's, I think, part of the thing, is that um, while at the same time I am, I am compelled by the research or the findings that I have around how these norms get reproduced and are very much part of the way that uh, young women and men are um, socialized into being social with each other or to, to be um, adults. At the same time, it's a problem if that becomes kind of like the one view. And in a sense, that kind of goes back to you know, that story about the, the danger of a single story. The danger of a single story is that it perpetuates um, stereotypes that are actually really problematic. And given what's happening right now in the world, in the US, Perpetuating any kind of story that doesn't do justice to the full kind of um, complexity of Muslim life is extremely dangerous. And I actually want to um, point out some of the danger of even calling it Islamophobia, for example, like the, the term itself, not obviously describing the phenomenon, because what we do when we call something a phobia is we kind of create a medicalized, individualized kind of way of understanding that. And I think that's part of the
reason why you were referencing that other people maybe don't understand the, um, the, the kind of complexity and the reach of this problem is because we're not calling it anti-Muslim racism and seeing it alongside all these other forms of racism that exist. By calling it Islamophobia, we kind of um, put this in this type of like, oh, this person has like a phobia, like if you're like scared of spiders. But that's really doing a real disservice to the, the content or the, the substance of, of this, um, this phenomenon. So um, I also just wanted to point that out because I was thinking that as we were having that conversation. And maybe what are some of the rhetorical strategies that we can use to, um, again, call out what is actually the issue here and, and seek to normalize Muslim uh, you know, cultural life in relation to all the other ways that people are existing and, and living in the U.S. Um, when I um, speak specifically to teachers and I talk about how, it, how important it is to normalize Muslims, part of the issue is that when, for example, in educational settings, people do this kind of lesson on Islam, it's like the day that they decide to talk about Islam. So it's like just that day, everything is about Islam that day. And so everything seems kind of like unique in some way. But you can kind of adapt this for different age levels. For example, if we're going to talk about nutrition with like second or third graders, you can talk about it in relation to kosher food, for example, Jewish communities. You can talk about it in relation to being gluten-free and that being something that some people have to do. You can talk about it in relation to being vegan. It doesn't have to be special that, oh, halal is this Muslim thing and everybody else eats everything. No, that's not the case. Obviously, there's all this kind of like complexity, and kids actually are able to understand that in a way that I think adults have a really hard time. Adults actually are the ones who are really socialized into thinking, oh, Muslim is other, this is not other. And young, young people are actually, if you, if you teach them in a way that normalizes being Muslim within the uh, social kind of spectrum of being an American, it's, not, it's really not that strange or different at all. It's actually very much, all of us are strange, and so, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm all for the strangeness. Would anybody else like to comment? Very short, I'd like to comment on uh, Mariam's um, last um, uh, thought about um, Muslim being, uh, being others. That's the core of the political rhetoric today, uh, that otherness. Muslims are others and they are in a way, kind of dangerous others. That's why we have we have uh, a problem. So that's the the core of the current narrative, which is which is dangerous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I have some fun stories, and I, I acknowledge the danger of a single story. Um, but, but I want to talk maybe about the work we have to do it internally. Um, Recently, I uh, went down to a mosque, I won't say whether it was on travel or locally, and uh, the women prayed in the basement and the men prayed on the first floor. And there was an overflow room for men in the basement in front of the women, demarcated by police tape. And I was like, whoa, this is next level the wrong thing. <laughs> this is not happening. <laughs> um, this is like maybe not super unusual in our community, and it's not because 90% of people comply or, or, or uh, uh, espouse these values. Um, it's because of some strange aggregation of power, uh, I would say, and maybe a, a, a 
generational type of, um, of, of leadership that is not necessarily optimal for, for where we are now. And, and, and maybe uh, an echoing of what we're seeing in the community at large, where uh, millennials and other young people are giving up on existing institutions and throwing in uh, the, the towel on, on participating because it's, it, the barriers to entry are too high. Uh, and I would say that that should be a familiar story for Americans on the left, for Americans on the right. I, I don't think that you know a Republican in Missouri is going to go into the local Republican caucus and find an area for women uh, roped off with police tape. But I do think that women in that context and in the context of organizing in general um, are uh, uh, just culturally speaking in America, uh, you know, are treated in ways that are. Um, discriminatory and, and, and minimize opportunity. So I, you know, I can go on with many stories all over the country that are all offensive uh, you know, to women and to, to people who are disenfranchised in, in other ways. Um, and I would say it is then incumbent upon us to talk about uh, opportunity and voice within our organizations as we do. I think the progressive left has been good about trying to engage these conversations, has not maybe yet succeeded. Um, and I, you know, I would say that it is then coming on people who are in leadership, who have snuck into leadership in many cases, benign but radical um, uh, on these boards and in these groups, uh, Muslim groups, Democratic groups, Republican groups, uh, nonprofit groups, to, to do actual proactive outreach and invitation. And when I look at the city level at Cambridge, where you know the, the standard political opinion before I was elected was uh, Cambridge, the greatest city in the world. Uh, Cambridge is not the greatest city in the world. There are lists of the greatest city in the world, and we are not on those lists. Uh, I would love to be on those lists, and I believe Cambridge could be the greatest city in the world, uh, given the resources we have, uh, the diversity we have, the opportunities we have, the potential we have. But we would have to be doing a great deal more outreach and invitation to those who are marginalized. We would have to be much more critical of where we are now in order to understand fully where we want to be and how we will get there. And then we must engage once we have done proactive outreach and invitation in, in training and, and strategy, as I said before, and, and those things are also absent. Uh, mentorship, for what it's worth, has completely disappeared from the American economic ecosystem and from much of, of the, well, I would uh, argue it's also disappeared from much of the academic ecosystem. Uh, these are not survivable uh, hallmarks of failure. These are uh, critical hallmarks of failure that show that a system is collapsing fully. Um, I don't want to be too bleak for you. Um, but it's also, you know, I, I have a whole little thing here about whether we're complicit or, or resistant, if I can throw that in here as well, I, I, because it, it, it lines up. I, 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 this is also very dark, but I hope it can also be inspiring. When we ask whether we are uh, complicit or resistant, I would ask first uh, about the hallmarks. Would each individual say they are doing enough? And I would, I would say that most people would say no. Um, that, that they would say that they themselves are not doing enough. Uh, would each individual say their community or peers are doing enough? No, of course, if, if, if people are now at a place where they say they aren't doing enough, they would say their peers aren't doing enough. Uh, do we fund uh, the inequity in the market? Do we, do we fund, do we perpetuate inequity via our purchases in the marketplace and via our taxes and other expenditures? I would say most people would say, yes, we do perpetuate the problem. We are not uh, solving uh, the problem. And the number four was, are we, are we offsetting and mitigating the behaviors religiously through a regular practice in ways that are substantive? And I would say most people would say about themselves, no, they have not even begun to mitigate and offset the ways in which they perpetuate inequity, gender and otherwise, in our society. So 
the, the final question, uh, questions are, you know, is it possible to win for justice? And I would say most people think it is possible to win for justice. We have the resources and the know-how. Are we going to win? And that's where I think most people would agree, agree with me that things are pretty bleak, because even if we get a Democratic majority in the House and Senate, even if we have a wonderful president, we have, we have seen opportunities like this before, and we have been underwhelmed by our capacity, legislative, community, or otherwise, to surmount these problems, even when we are in charge, in control, in view of the solution. Uh, and I would say that's very dark. But it should be also very inspiring. If we believe we have the resources, and if we are willing to admit, most of us, I think, in society today, that we are not doing enough, uh, shouldn't we just put down what we're doing and throw a bunch of energy against the wall? Shouldn't we, uh, as academics, scholars, and others, say, uh, I can admit that I and we are complicit, but that I and we wish to be resisting more actively? Uh, and, and it will be easy, I think, to steamroll the types of, of problems and to um, uh, maybe look back and laugh at the types of stories that we're facing today. Uh, I hope we can laugh at the stories we're facing today, uh, 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 simply because our, uh, potential for, our, our potential for winning and our potential for reversing this course uh, is, is, is so eminent and so um, uh, apparent right now. Um, I guess I'd just like to share my perspective, um, which I think is, a is, is unique in a way, um, in that because I'm a Muslim convert, um, I had kind of, in a way, a privilege of learning about Islam void of, of the cultural influence. Um, and in this sense, um, it's more background context, I've been living out of the US for seven years. I worked as a humanitarian aid worker in Iraq, Jordan, and uh, Kenya. And I converted while I was doing this work, so I, w I didn't actually experience what it's like to be a Muslim and be a female Muslim in America until fairly recently. Um, the context in which I reintegrated to my American heritage um, was really a rude awakening. Um, in terms of Islam being incompatible to you know, liberal ideology, I think that I am in, one, in some extent proof um, I'm a liberal white lady from Massachusetts, and this was this is the lifestyle and the spiritual, um, you know, guidance that I chose. You know, I wasn't sitting behind a computer screen when someone contacted me by Twitter and you know tried to, you know, force me to convert. But so at the same time, I feel like I kind of stand on the edge of Muslim American society, and that. Um, some of I don't I have to I have to exercise humility and modesty and understanding of the challenges of others while recognizing my own privilege and that um, you know I'm an American citizen and I speak English as a first language um, I feel it makes me more it allows me personally to be more brave I feel like it's my duty to take on risks that other people would maybe not feel comfortable to do because they don't have you know they're, because they're a green card holder because they're you know migrated to this country um, and 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 this you know it's so it's an interesting perspective because to me the way that I learned about Islam I it's it's almost hard for me to understand the way that we see women being treated in, in, in American Islamic culture. Um, it, it, it makes me feel as though, you know, learning about being religious is an enormous responsibility and it requires constant education and rethinking and, and, and most importantly, open-mindedness. 
And I think that the thing that has you know, been kind of shocking to me, not only the external community having such aggressive and negative attitudes towards the Muslim community, is the way that the Muslim community um, does not include women in leadership. And I see this a lot in my work when I go to different mosques um, and I sit around at a table with mosque leadership and I'm the only woman there. And I don't feel like I should be the only woman there because my perspective is different and maybe more narrow than someone who has been a Muslim in America for a long time or comes, you know, is a part of a minority population or represents the culture of the majority who attends that mosque. So even for myself, I feel like I, I, there needs to be more women because there needs to be more perspective. Um, and the power system needs to change. It's not healthy. It's not doing the Muslim community any good to, to you know, like what Nadim was saying, to discourage young people from participating in Muslim activities in the Muslim community because they don't feel comfortable. Like women who don't feel comfortable going to the mosque without hijab on or who don't feel as though they are, you know, pious enough to participate. This is not going to give us any momentum in creating change for our community in this country. Um, so I, I think that, you know, Islam is so, it, it is justice. It, it was especially for women. And I just hope that, um, you know, as, as times change and as, you know, we're fostering young people to, to take positions of leadership in the, their community, and, and as Nadim was saying, to give them the capacity to mobilize and to lead, um, I hope that uh, things will change, and I hope that you know the, the academics in this city and in this state and in this country, um, you know, the professionals of all kinds in the nonprofit sector as well, that we can kind of be a driving force behind this. Um, and just really, I think open-mindedness is, is the key. We, because we don't have profits alive in this time, we really can't say what is and isn't correct with certainty. We always have to be open to, to ideas being correct or being incorrect. And I, you know, this is, this is, I see, as the only solution um, into you know, the American Muslim community um, not having a successful resistance within the system that we have to work in. Thank you for that. I think this panel has really demonstrated the diversity of experiences um, and perspectives that are prevalent in many you know, aspects of our lives. So I'd like to open it up to the audience for any questions that you might have. Um, we probably have time for about one or two questions, so feel free to raise your hand and we'll get a mic to you. So, I'm going to be selfish since I already have the mic. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so this question kind of brings up the question of diversity. Um, uh, so I study race in the intersection of race and religion and public policy. Um, so recently, a number of scholars curated a syllabus called Islam, Islamophobia is Racism. Um, I have a particular sensibility about this question. Uh, I think that calling Islamophobia racism flattens the racial diversity that we see within the Muslim community. However, I do find that Islamophobia is not a very well-pointed term, and I think that it's kind of a blanket term. So I know that you, Miriam, brought it up. Um, in your comments, so I was wondering if you and the rest of the panel could sort of talk about what is added to or taken away from the discussion whenever we lump Islamophobia and anti-Muslim rhetoric and bigotry 
into this category of racism and does that flatten the complexity? For example, um, many people don't know in the United States of America that there's a large black American Muslim community. Um, Sherman Jackson actually quotes it at, or cites it at 42% um, black Muslims in America. So I was just wondering if you could complicate that question of racism and Islamophobia. Thank you so much. That's a really good question. Um, so I think the way that I usually talk about it is as a process of racialization. And we're all constantly implicated in processes of racialization, right? Um, partially based on how we are, how we appear to other people, whether we're talking about physical, actual phenotypic features, we're talking about the way that we speak, the language that, you, that is used, whether you have an accent or you're using a particular kind of English language variety, standard or non-standard, and also the, the dress, right? And so part of the reason that I think people are, are moving towards talking about it as a form of racism, while still acknowledging that there may be ways that that's taken up and flattens the, the complexity of um, racism in the, in the Americas um, over the last 500 years, there's also this kind of process of racialization that's happened for specifically the Muslim community and for specifically for brown and black Muslims in the United States, right? Um, and, and I think by, by calling attention to it as, I mean, I, when I teach about it, I actually don't necessarily go quickly to calling it racism as much as I'm interested in kind of explaining how Muslims have become racialized subjects in the United States and kind of tracing that through media, through policy, through um, just kind of like general cultural um, shifts that have happened over the last, I mean, definitely over the last 16 years, but we could even go far as back as like the Cold War and thinking about um, the construction of like good Muslim countries versus bad Muslim countries and how those distinctions were created. And so um, when you start seeing kind of like all these different pieces in relationship to each other, you do start to see a certain system of racialization that has negatively impacted Muslims, but specifically a certain, a certain group of Muslims. And that is not to say, I mean, I, I didn't realize it was 42%, but I, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, above a third of the American Muslim population is, is um, African American. And, and I am not totally clear, for example, why when there are challenges that are being faced, for example, specifically thinking about police brutality or um, the criminalization of uh, black bodies in this country, why that's not a Muslim issue why actually our organizations are not speaking publicly and um, very deliberately on this issue as a Muslim issue, because it is, clearly it is. If that's such, such a large population of our, of our community is experiencing this kind of oppression, then why are we not taking a more clear stand on it? Why does the attention go towards um, forms of anti-Muslim racism specifically as opposed to kind of like these other forms of racism? So, and the other part of it is I don't see it as a zero-sum game. I don't see it as like exclusively we have to choose one or the other, but these are multiple forms of racism and some of them are much older and have a much more uh, just tragic um, history in this country that needs to be addressed and really understood within the community, which is really not done. I think it's still shocking, for example, that, um, that South Asians, for, for example, are sometimes oblivious to these realities and have to still be educated on how this has occurred and how it's, it's very quick to say something like, oh, some of the first 
um, residents of this country were Muslims. But why are you doing that? What is the point of using that historical like data point to make a narrative for why um, me as a South Asian uh, American belong here, belongs here? Like that's actually, that's disingenuous. There's a kind of like misleading argument that gets created there. So I, I'm all about actually um, kind of interrogating why the narratives get constructed the way they do. But at the same time, I do want to call attention to the ways that perhaps maybe a process of racialization is a better framework to understand how this is taking shape specifically for the Muslim community today and to not conflate all of the people who are identified as Muslim in this country within, to, within one kind of like category because I do think that does a disservice and is, um, and is really problematic. So, yeah. Sorry, I'm also inclined to kind of categorize it as racism as well because if you, we see every day that uh, fear and hatreds towards Muslims does not only affect Muslims, it affects many people of color and many other religions as well. Um, Indian men were shot dead because they were perceived to be Muslim. Um, you know, Sikh, the Sikh population is under fire constantly because they appear to be Muslim. Um, so I think, you know, I don't know, I'm always, without... Uh, academic understanding of the linguistics behind the word xenophobia, um, I think the fear of other is almost um, more encompassing than racism. Um, the fear of outsiders, the fear of people looking and behaving different than the norm. I mean, even going back to the insight on halal versus kosher food, um, people are much more willing to accommodate veganism, gluten-free diets than if you say you're halal, you'll get a strange look. Um, so I, I think that while, um, you know, I, I agree that Islamophobia is too narrow of a term to describe what's happening in America, but, um, you know, certainly this hatred and fear is not exclusive to affecting the Muslim community, and eventually it will trickle down and it will affect everyone, because as was also mentioned before, we are all strange and we are all different, so I think no one is really safe from being viewed as an outsider. And we have to remember, as we said earlier, that this is systematic uh, against the Muslim uh, community. It would not be to this extent for our community and for other either marginalized or discriminated uh, or, or uh, targeted communities if it were not so politically fruitful mm. and economically viable. Yeah. Um, it is easy to do. It is, uh, uh, and obviously, highly prob problematic, uh, uh, if not in many cases illegal. Uh, to libel or slander or, or uh, harass someone in this way. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but it's happening for a reason. And, and we understand, uh, if you can step back uh, a, step, a step, the levers of power that cause something like this to happen. So once again, we're not powerless to interrupt and disrupt uh, these, uh, these norms. Uh, granted, we may never solve the problem entirely, but certainly I don't see the mobilization of uh, um, a latent... Uh, alt-right racist uh, views as a, uh, I, I could probably go on forever on this, so I, 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 instead, of, instead of belaboring the point, maybe I'll let you get one more question in or something like that. <laughs> we only have a few minutes, so if it's one quick question, then we can do that, and then we'll move on to lunch. <laughs> I, uh, I think um, the panel is beautiful. I heard a um, lot of questions, and um, I'm just probably going to ask one question. Um, but I was more interested in the democracy and Islam being compatible. 
And um, I don't really um, feel like that's um, a valid point because um, it, we are living in a country where like a lot of things that are happening today is promoted by the government and we can see on a daily basis, the media is telling us, we can see some of us witness a lot of things that is happening. But um, I feel that if someone is a thief, you should call them a thief. As in, if someone is, a, um, you're Muslim and probably we are threatened by um, the country being run by Sharia laws and things like that. I, I don't feel, there are other countries who are Muslims, like you said, 90%, 95% of probably where you're from. Um, they're democratic countries. They are politically, um, there's still um, a lot of Muslims living in there without affecting, you know, how the country is being run and everything. Because they are Christians as well, you respect them. Personally, I came from a Christian home and I'm Muslim. How is that possible? It's mystery. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, my mother is Christian and um, I decided to be Muslim because my dad is Muslim and I studied both. I was given the opportunity to study both. So sitting down today and I could hear a lot of views and I could see people from different backgrounds and it's, it's great and beautiful. And um, I, 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 it's not a question for the Democrat. I was just trying to address that situation. But um, my question goes to uh, Nadim, um, since he's a leader. I can't miss this opportunity to ask you this question okay. because I am constantly um, in a state of, um, I don't know how to put it, it's not fear, but it is troubling uh, times that we're in, like, you know, um, you yourself have been under attack a lot of times and um, uh, Breitbart, you know, um, they uh, launched a series of, um, you know, um, concerns about you and they have said a lot of um, linking you to terrorism and all these things but yeah I know <laughs> yeah but um, my thing is what do you also do in that aspect to address the negative part of, that's associated with our religion and our culture because that's very important for other people to know as well because yeah as a leader you you were representing the community? I, I, I'm typically lucky when I have to address these things head on because they're usually so poorly put together. So in this case, people were coming out of the woodwork and they were like, this article is barely legible. Uh, and, and that is obviously extremely, extremely helpful when you're fighting back, when people can spontaneously tell that something is not right. In, I think, most of the cases, it's not that cut and dry. And in fact, as, you, as you've noted, there, there is a... Um, fairly ubiquitous sense, uh, negative sense, about Muslims in the popular consciousness, especially given that most people believe they have not met, a large number of people believe they have not met um, a, a Muslim in this country. I would say in that case, it's incumbent on each of us to practice narrative storytelling and to take back the narrative. And I've had great luck on conservative radio. I've had great experiences going out into uh, un, uh, maybe pr previously uh, uh, less hospitable communities to, to, to Muslim, American Muslims. And we fielded the questions about political Islam and everything else. People are shocked to find out that they're more angry with me because I'm a progressive than because I'm a Muslim. And that's great. 
You know, that's great. I would love someone to challenge me on the merits of $15 minimum wage, but for them to realize that everything that has been propagated here is largely about their side's political power. And when they realize that they're already upset with their side for not telling the truth, and when they realize that I'm upset with my side, not my Islamic uh, Muslim community side, but my Dem Democratic Party side for not telling the truth, there's it, a very rich... Uh, opportunity for conversation here, and it's just a matter of three million people now trying to, uh, and you know, the one percent who who are in leadership or the five percent who are in leadership amongst them, trying to address an audience of some three hundred plus million people. And it is a matter of time. It's a matter of strong allies and, and strong partnerships. But uh, I, I think it's also a battle that, if, if history is any indicator, we, we will win in short order. The, this uh, the situation. Uh, and the depth of this type of racism and, and targeting um, cannot withstand the truth. Can we follow up after? I think so. We're going to want to end the panel, but we will talk for sure. Thank you. Thank you to our panelists. Please join me in thanking our panelists.